From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. But we are starting off the show uh, with uh, a very sad story and an update to, to a story that really got so much attention back in 2006. That is the year when many people will remember Manjeet Pangali, a young school teacher, was brutally murdered. Her burned body was found in October of that year on Delta Port Way, and her husband and other family members reported her missing about 26 hours after she was last seen. There was a news conference that was held in uh, the days following her disappearance. And at that news conference, the uh, husband, Mukhtar Pangali, addressed the media and made a plea saying that his wife, who was four months pregnant at the time, had been happy as she left for a prenatal class. And that was the last time anyone in her family saw her. Well, here is just some of the audio from that news conference that took place back in 2006. I'm here today make a plea to the most caring country in the world, the most caring citizens in the world, that I need your help. My daughter needs your help. My wife needs your help. My family needs your help. My wife cared for the children of this community. She taught I care for the citizens and the children of this community. I am also a teacher. Every day, we pour our hearts out to give as much as we can to those little lives that will be the future. Right now, I need you to please, if you know anything, to give back to us. Please, we need your help. Thank you. So we obviously didn't know it at the time, but at the time of that news conference, and again, that is the voice of Mukhtar Pangali, he had already killed his wife and disposed of the body. A few months after that news conference, he was charged with the second-degree murder of Manjeet. He was later convicted and sentenced to a life prison, a life sentence in prison with no chance of parole for 15 years. Well, Kim Bolin, who writes about crime in the Vancouver Sun, is reporting on this today, reporting that Pengali has been granted full parole. And that has a lot of people asking questions about the justice system and how the parole system itself is working. Well, joining me to talk more about this is Sarah Lehman, who is a lawyer. She's the founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us much for having me. When you look at the facts of this case and the sentence that he was given, what's your response to this? Well, the facts in this case are just absolutely tragic and severely aggravated. Um, I think that this is one that the public will remember because of the nature of the offense and what took place. Um, It is troubling. It's a very, very disturbing case. uh, And it, it is quite shocking to hear that somebody who's committed an offense like this is being granted full parole, um, but we don't have all of the facts about uh, this person's rehabilitation while they were in custody serving their sentence. Uh, and so I expect that um, he's made some great steps towards rehabilitation in order to satisfy the parole board that he's not going to pose any further risk to the public moving forward in spite 
of the severity of the offense that he uh, committed back in 2006. When you look at the sentence as well, he was convicted of second degree murder. And so so he was arrested, I think it was about five months after after the body of Manjeet Pangali was discovered. Uh, Muktiar Pangali was then convicted of second degree, degree murder as well as indignity to a body. Uh, so a second degree murder conviction comes, if I'm correct, with an automatic life sentence. But then there is some leeway or some some difference on, on chance of parole. So when you look at it, if you look at it just from the sentence that that he would get, has he served his time? Yes. So he was sentenced to life in prison. You're correct about that. Um, and the sentence started uh, in March of 2011. Um, when it comes to parole, the person who is uh, sentenced to a, a life of imprisonment um, will have to serve uh, a statutory part of that sentence in order to become eligible to be considered for release back into the community. Um, In this case, because he spent so much time in pre-trial custody waiting for his trial, uh, he was given uh, quite a bit of credit towards his sentence. And so he ended up serving 11 years, which was the statutory requirement that he do prior to be considered for parole. And you mentioned this as well, and and we don't have all of the details. Again, uh, Kim Bolin, who has been covering this as well, has written about it in the Vancouver Sun today. Uh, But in in her reporting, she talks a bit about the fact that corrections officials did tell the parole board that uh, Mukhtar Pangali had participated in self-improvement programs, that he had uh, completed several temporary absences, he had, had uh, completed several day parole uh, absences, and that, that he had accepted responsibility for his actions and his choices. How important are those factors when a parole board decides if somebody is given parole or not? Yeah, so the parole board members will consider a wide variety of information available at the time of making the decision. Um, They will consider things like specific risk-relevant information, which can include rehabilitative efforts that the person has made while they're incarcerated. Um, It can also include changes in their um, own uh, view of what happens uh, with respect to the offense. And it seems as though this individual has made some significant changes Um, From what I'm seeing in the media, uh, it looks like he had previously minimized uh, what took place and not accepted responsibility, but he's now in a place where he is accepting uh, his responsibility for what happened, um, and he has engaged in quite a bit of um, rehabilitative efforts while he's been in the prison system. Um, Again, you know, I'm not privy to all of the information here, but the parole board process is one that is quite thorough uh, and considers, again, a wide variety of of, uh, documents and uh, circumstances, as well as uh, the wishes of victims or people who have been affected uh, by this crime um, and reports from doctors and other people who have been uh, assisting him through his rehabilitation while incarcerated. Uh, part of the conditions of this as well, again, uh, according to uh, Kim Bolin, is that he will continue to have those strict conditions. He's not to contact his wife's family. Uh, they have a daughter who, if I'm doing the math right, their daughter is probably around 20 years old now, not to contact anybody in the family without permission. Uh, are, are those rules generally enforced? And when those conditions are put against somebody, they do have to follow those? 
Yes, those are very serious mandatory conditions. And so uh, if a person who's on parole breaches their conditions, it's very possible that the parole could be revoked. Um, it is serious. It is something that he has to take seriously. Uh, and these conditions have been put in place to the best of my understanding, according to the input and wishes of um, the surviving family, including his, his daughter, uh, who I understand wishes to have no contact with him at this time. Cases like this, and this is a particularly violent and disturbing case, so the, the, then again, the details of when uh, Manjeet Pangali disappeared. Um, she was d- reported missing, I think it was about 26 hours later, by her husband, uh, by her family, and uh, her burned body was found at Delta Port, uh, in, uh, along with um, after she'd been reported missing. Uh, when, when people hear and will remember the details of this case, it feels like no matter what the conditions or the reasons given that somebody is granted parole, um, people will hear that he was sentenced to a li- life in prison, he was given a life term, and that, that he should serve that. How do you kind of explain or, or I guess explain how parole works and the fact that, that th- there are those checks and balances, hopefully, or there are those reasons that he has been released. Yeah, I mean, again, the facts in this case are just absolutely chilling. This is, you know, one of the most extremely aggravated situations that uh, the criminal justice system deals with. Um, that being said, it is established law in Canada that no offender, no matter how heinous their crime is, can be considered beyond the pale of rehabilitation. So there has to be a reasonable opportunity for that person to make parole. Um, And again, that's something that's in the exclusive jurisdiction of the Parole Board of Canada, which operates on a um, well-established guidelines and with with, um, information and protocol uh, that has been in place for a very, very long time, uh, considering a wide variety of circumstances as to whether or not it's reasonable to release the person. Primarily, is this person going to be a risk to public safety? So the parole board is there to help facilitate uh, the reintroduction of an offender back into the community and to do so in a way that doesn't pose any threat or harm to the community while properly supporting the pro-social rehabilitation of the offender. Um, And that is at the core of our justice system and it's something that uh, it plays a very important role in our justice system. And when we're talking about that as well, is the only scenario when somebody could be held potentially longer or or for an indefinite sentence than if somebody is, is ruled a dangerous offender, which which clearly that, that was not the case here? Yes. If the parole board feels that the person is going to pose a risk to the community, then the person is not going to be deemed eligible for parole. And again, there's a variety of factors that would be considered in deciding if that is the case. Um, parole is not uh, something that is just flippantly granted. Um, it, there is a thorough process set up, and it is one, again, that is uh, a hallmark of our justice system, which places a very strong emphasis on rehabilitation, no matter how serious and heinous and egregious the crime is. Sarah Lehman, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk more about this case. Thanks for having me. It is Wednesday afternoon, and that means it is time for us to check in with President and Founder of Travel Best Bets, Claire Newell. Claire, good afternoon to you. 
Oh, thanks so much. Good afternoon to you, Jill. I'm hoping you're not going to hear the rain splashing <laughs> against my window. It's almost like Chinese water torture in my office. It's so loud. It is some um, heavy rain out there for sure. It sure is. The phones are going crazy with people looking for hot spots to like Mexico and the Caribbean and Hawaii, even down to Vegas. Just it, that's kind of what people want right now. Um, we have a lot of news to, to go through today, but um, I wanted to quickly start with a, a, an announcement about Porter Airlines is launching a new daily service between Ottawa and Calgary. So you and I have chatted a lot about Porter because of the fact that they started this new jet service uh, across the country and they weren't in the market pre-pandemic. So it's really causing um, a drop in domestic airfare, which is really great for consumers. So this will be Ottawa to Calgary. They fly these new 132-seater Embraer aircraft, which is, they're a really cool aircraft. Two seats on either side, a single aisle down the middle, which means no middle seats. So lots of people love it. Plus, they've um, had all sorts of throw-ins, like free Wi-Fi and drinks and things like that. So um, this is not going to start until Valentine's Day, uh, February the 14th, but it's just their latest expansion into Western Canada. So they already are doing flights into Vancouver and Edmonton. So now they're adding Calgary to the mix. Uh, and I've heard great things. I will fully admit I've not flown Porter, but I have many friends who have been doing it, and they've they've talked very highly of them. Yeah, I haven't actually either. Uh, my son is now living in Toronto, so I, I will definitely try them in uh, in the coming months. But it's uh, I've heard nothing but good things as well. And actually, my own husband and a bunch of friends that I know who travel back and forth a lot um, within Canada have actually have um, joined their loyalty program because they were uh, matching Air Canada's loyalty program. So, you know, if you had elite status, whether that was 35,000 or 50,000 or 75 or, or super elite at 100,000, you were getting the same type of perks, which was really great. And a lot of people are willing to try it. I have some bad news about Disney. And unfortunately, I, I hate, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> um, but they are raising the price on all sorts of things. And if you're a fan of Dole Whip, like I am, mm -hmm. which is that really yummy Dole pineapple whip, it's going up massively, but it's really, that's the least of the worries. Um, the ticket prices are increasing by 8.9%. And if you know what current inflation rate, it's about 3.67%. So it's almost double the, the, um, the rate of inflation. So, which is scary because Disneyland, which for us here in Vancouver and BC, it's the most popular and a day can now cost an individual up to 294 US dollars and that's excluding food and additional attractions so this is um I, I wrote in a note to you it's a stark contrast because <laughs> less than a decade ago the entry prices were 99 US dollars a day so um my advice is if you're planning down planning a visit to go to the to Disneyland Resort buy your uh park hopper passes ahead of time you can't do it there. You're paying daily rates if you go. So whether that's a three, four, or five-day uh, park hopper pass, you can get them uh, ahead of time, and it will save you money. But it's not just that. Like I say, it's Dole Whip, it's parking, it's their Genie Plus attractions, all raising the, the price. And, you know, despite all of this, Jill, people are flocking to the parks all over the world. Like, they've got a whole number of them. Like they saw 100 million people go into their parks worldwide last year.
Yeah, I, and it is, I mean, it is expensive. And like you said, it's gone up so much. But also, I was there not too, too long ago. And I was looking and, you know, going to the the nightly fireworks and the things that they put on. It made me wonder how much they are spending. And I know there's issues, too, with what they pay staff and such. But how much it costs to keep those parks running. Yeah. Yes, it's expensive. But you also do get that experience. So it's, um, it's I don't know, it's a tough one. Yeah, it's why people go. Um, have you flown United Airlines, or have you? Are you? Have I you have flown recently. I yeah, have. me too. Um, but they're updating their boarding procedure this month. It's going to start really soon, actually, October the twenty-sixth. But I've seen lots of airlines use the method that they're going to, because it's a, such a big time saver for boarding. So if you're going to be flying and you're listening um, on United Airlines, they're going to be using something called Wilma. That's the what um, that's the short for it. It basically stands for window middle aisle. That's why they call it Wilma. Mm-hmm. So the people who are um, at the window, they'll be called first, then the middle, and then the aisle. It makes sense, right? It does. Obviously, this is not going to be the case if you're in like a premium economy or you're in business class. Um, if you have uh, kids that are really young and or you need assistance boarding of course those people will still go on first um, but then they're going to move to this this method and i have seen this on other airlines it works like a charm mm, interesting wilma I, I i was picturing a, a worker just yelling out wilma at the the counter but obviously that's that's not the case but this will be a time saver <laughs> yeah it will it will be a, a time saver um american airlines has some new routes coming to canada They announced a whole bunch of new routes, but what I really wanted to to highlight for their 2024 season is a couple that are coming to Canada. Both of them are starting on June the 5th. The first is um, Halifax, Nova Scotia from their, uh, their, basically their hub in LaGuardia, which is New York's LaGuardia Airport. Um, Another one that's really great for us here in BC, and it'll be the only nonstop route from North Carolina. They're gonna be flying from Charlotte, North Carolina, to Vancouver. Hmm. So um, that'll be good. If you uh, want to see that part of the world, you have family in that part of the world, it's just going to make things a whole lot easier and likely less expensive to get to. That is uh, good news. So that's uh, happening on American Airlines. And this story, Claire, I know you have flown with your small dog in the cabin of planes. I have flown and I find it very stressful. I try not to do it, but with my dog in the under in the cargo of the plane. But I'm, I'm I'm, I don't know, I'm a little taken aback that we even have to be telling people that the TSA is reminding people about this, but clearly this is something that's happening. Yeah, okay, well, if you saw me, my eyes are rolling. I'm shaking my head, okay? Um, yeah, this came from TSA, and it was a, because too many travelers were feeding their dogs and cats or whatever through the screening machine. So, okay, let's just... We need to clear this up so that we don't have any of our listeners doing this. The pets do not pass through the x-ray machine. Like security, they should have to be taken out of their carriers and walked or carried through the metal detectors. And while the pets don't go through, the empty carriers have to pass through to be screened. And then a TSA officer actually will swap a pet owner's hands if it's in a leash or they're holding them. If they need to check, you know, that when they, they, they um, swab your hands for potential explosive residue, mm-hmm. they'll do that. Um, but, yeah, please don't put your pets no. through the, the x-ray machines. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I can't believe we're actually doing this. I actually was um, saddened to hear about this as well. Um, 
about the Grand Canyon. Lots of people leave those love locks. I was actually in uh, Ireland, and when we were in Dublin, I wanted to go over one of the bridges, um, the Liffey River Bridge, because they, I've seen lots of locks on it. They're all removed, um, and the Grand Canyon is asking that people stop leaving those love locks around the National Park, and it's pr- to protect the condors. They have been actually not eating the locks, but they, you know, people, when they put their padlocks on, they throw away the key. And they've been grabbing those keys and swallowing them. And some have to be, um, you know, taken and surgically dealt with to remove the obstruction. And some are dying because they're eating too many of those shiny objects because they're like small kids. You know, if there's something shiny, they put it in their mouths, unfortunately. So if you're going to the Grand Canyon and you wanted to do the love locks, please don't do it. Don't do it. And don't, and and I get... I get the whole what, what people are doing this for and that, but it's still littering. You're still throwing a piece of metal in the Grand Canyon. Whether And like you said, too, these, these condors are eating them, so just not a good idea at all. Yeah, no, not a good idea at all. And do we have time for another story? Or sure, let's, yes, because this is big if, uh, if you want yeah. to plan any trips to Amsterdam. Yeah, it is. Um, Amsterdam just, like this earlier this week, announced a tourist tax increase for 2024. So because of the nonstop KLM flight, it's a real hub for people from BC to start or end their trip. And then they may go different locations, but because of that, a lot of people stay there for their first nights or or even um, at the end. So right now they have a rate of three euro per night and that's added onto your hotel stay. That's raising to four euros, which is a big big chunk, 25% increase. And um, it'll be the equivalent of $5.75. Sorry, that'll be actually a 33% increase hmm. um, because it's uh, an extra euro over the three euros. So, yeah, and they're, they're putting this money, and I understand it, toward um, sustainability projects, infrastructure improvements, and promotion of cultural and historical heritage. Um, but if you didn't know that this was happening and that you had to pay a tourist tax, these types of things are happening all over Europe now, and, and not just Europe, all over the world to help with sustainability issues is, is prime, the primary reason. All right, so that's happening in Amsterdam. Uh, let's touch on one more as well, because I know it's a, a lot of people like to travel. If you can sleep on an overnight train, it t- takes away the cost of a hotel room and it can get you to your next destination. And this is a new uh, night train that is set to launch. Yeah, I really I thought this was a really great idea. We're seeing trains take over especially for short haul flights. A lot, those are being banned in Europe. So there's, they're finding alternatives. In fact, sometimes when you buy an air ticket, it will include part that will be on train. So this will be a new service starting on December 11th. So it's coming up really, really soon. Whether you board in Paris or Berlin, you're boarding in the evening and you get there um, the next morning and they will you'll have all the services that you might need, including those sleeper beds. I think it's a great way to travel. You're not losing any time um, going to airports and things. You're just trains. You can show up 15 minutes before and get on board and boom, you wake up and you're there. So it's a really good service. So look into that. Again, it's from Paris or well, between Paris and Berlin and it's starting on December 11th. So if you're looking at doing that um, over the summer months, initially it's going to run three times a week, but during the, the fall of 2024 of next year, they're going to be going daily. 
All right. Yeah, I know. Like you said, it's really being encouraged, and uh, I'm sure more and more people will take advantage of that. So, um, I, I know I only said one more. We've got time, though, and I, I also wanted to touch on this because Morocco, people might think that because of the earthquake uh, that it's a place to stay away from, but people are still going. Yeah, so it was September the 8th when the earthquake hit in the High Atlas Mountains, um, but the country welcomed 960,000 international travelers in September, which was actually up eight and a half percent from the same month back in 2019, which was pre-pandemic. They are seeing a boom um, in, in travel to that part of the world. And so much so that um, the Canadian Transport Agency has actually issued a new license to operate scheduled service between Canada and Morocco to Air Transat. So in addition to some of the flights that Air Canada fly, um, I know that they have a nonstop from Montreal to Casablanca. Um, this is this is great news. People really want to knock this off their bucket list. And I've been, I love Morocco. I was so saddened to hear about the, the earthquake last month. Um, but it's really good to know that travelers are going because that's one of the best ways you can support uh, an area that's been hit hard. Um, I, I just want to add one thing. I actually was at my hairdresser yesterday and she was in Maui just the week before. And she said, it's dead. Mm. It is so quiet. There's no one there. Um, if, you know, if you have plans to go to Maui, one of the ways that you can help is to spend your tourist dollars and visit. If, if it was taken off of your agenda and, and you're wondering where to go, maybe put it back on. Um, but yeah, they're really, really hurting there. All right. That is a good reminder. Uh, let's get the deals out there for people. What deals do you have today? Okay, I have three, and I love all of them. And so um, Vegas, staying at the four-star Paris Hotel, which is right in the center of the Strip, January 14th through until February 4th. And there are some awesome concerts and um, great shows. And I think F1's going there, Super Bowl's there later in February. Uh, it's just, they've got some great things going on this fall and winter. But air and three nights staying at the Four Star Paris Hotel is $1.99. The taxes are more. I know, don't shoot me, shoot the messenger, but it's 203 for the taxes, but a really good buy. The taxes aren't going down, no matter what you pay. Um, the Riviera Maya in a five-star. So this is airfare and seven nights in a five-star beachfront all-inclusive resort. So I've got two windows for you. There are four dates um, in the fall and winter, which is November the 28th, 30th, or December 4th or 7th, 11.79, taxes of 6.14. This is an adults-only one. It's the hideaway at Royalton Riviera Cancun, which is gorgeous. Um, and then there are three dates in January, the 22nd, 23rd, or 24th, 13.99, same tax as 614, and that's at the Royalton Riviera Cancun. Um, again, five stars, some really, really good buys there. And then do I have time for one more? Quickly, yes. Okay, at seven-night cruise, we call it the Pacific Wine Country. It's L.A., so you need a one-way flight to L.A., but it sails all the way up to Vancouver, awesome ports, uh, L.A., Santa Barbara, San Francisco, Astoria, Oregon, Victoria, ending in Vancouver, April the 7th, 499 the taxes are three eighty six, and again, that four ninety nine is for a seven night cruise. All right, great deals, all of them on the website. Claire, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jill. Talk to you next week.
Well, we know that in Metro Vancouver, there are a lot of great restaurants. I'm sure many of you have your favorites, but have you ever taken a look at those that have made it into the BC Restaurant Hall of Fame? This is a Hall of Fame first conceived back in 2004. The first groups that were honored, that took place in March of 2005. And well, they have been honoring restaurants ever since. And the list of the inductees has just been released. And there are some amazing stories on that list and the celebration is going to be taking place a little later this month on the 23rd but we thought it would be fun to check in with one of those on the list and David Wong is joining me now. David Wong is the owner of the oldest pub in British Columbia. David thank you so much for taking the time. Oh thank you Jill. Uh, The oldest pub in BC pretty uh, great title this is the Six Mile Pub and Eatery. Uh, Can can tell us a little bit about how you got involved with this. Oh it's I'm not sure I've always liked uh, um, history always liked uh, old buildings in fact um, you know I came from one of the I came actually from the oldest school in Singapore so I think maybe that was what uh, got me interested in um, in places with a lot of long um, established history. So when the opportunity came around for me in 2002 to purchase the uh, Six Month Pub, I uh, jumped on the opportunity. I understand, though, this wasn't really what you were focused on at the time, that you had worked as a cook in a pizza restaurant that was paying your your tuition, though, you were going to university. You actually had planned on a very different route, going down the road of becoming a clinical psychologist. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. That that had been the plan since I was about 12 years old. But... um, (laughs) You know, things happen. I, I met my um, my wife um, while I was going to university. She was on a foreign, visa, foreign student visa here. And uh, when we both graduated with our bachelor's degree in 86, um, it was, um, you know, that was when I, I had to make the decision whether I continue with my studies and possibly lose her. Um, because, you know, it'd be, it'd be years of a long-distance relationship or, um, you know, try and save up as much, um, try, and, try and collect the capital I needed to, uh, to bring her over to, uh, to start a life uh, together. And um, coincidentally, the keg at that time had an opening for a kitchen manager. They offered me the job, and I took it. And uh, it allowed me to save the capital I needed to bring my wife um, over to Canada, and here we are today. Wow, what, years later. <laughs> amazing when you look back. I would think and look at the decisions—pretty big decisions that you had to make—and how those really uh, were key points in your both your career and and your personal life. Absolutely. You know, some people ask me if I have ever regretted not uh, pursuing the dream that I've, I've had since I was twelve years old, and uh, the answer is absolutely not. It's it's been great. Um, I think having. Having my wife with me this whole time had really helped in everything else that I do in my life, including, um, um, you know, my um, my accomplishments in the in the restaurant business here in Victoria. So I'm happy about that. I would imagine too that that even though you didn't continue down the path of becoming a, a clinical psychologist from your studies and and what you what schooling you had taken, there must be some some part of that 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 work that that you can apply those studies when it comes to running a restaurant and to working in that environment 
Absolutely. You know, some people say that bartenders are amateur psychologists, right? So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so in in a sense, it, it, it's kind of played out well. And, and, and I think it's, it's you know, at, at the end of the day, our business is about relationships, about fostering relationships, building relationships and taking care of people. And, and I think so I'm able to satisfy a lot of those parts of me that, that I, I had, would have gone to, uh, to get if, you know, to become a psychologist. So no regrets. Everything worked out. Uh, you mentioned too, so working as and getting that job as as uh, kitchen manager in what I think it was called Chandler's, but a member of the Keg family that many people will recognize that name, the Keg, and and you worked for kind of the bigger those, those bigger corporate type restaurants before uh, going on to the the Six Mile Pub. What are the the main differences, or or did you have a preference on what kind of work environment you're in? No, I think I think everything I did um, sort of helped me do what I do today. Um, working for the keg and then and then at some point milestones was was a huge help because they are the best training grounds. Um, it's it's at those places that we learn systems that we learn a lot of the um, the business end of the um, the restaurant business because it, it's not enough just to be a good cook to open up a restaurant, right? You need to have a lot of other skills, including you know running the business, including taking care of people, taking care of staff, motivating staff, all those kinds of things. And so the cake was a was a great great um, place to learn that, and 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 I think it was those are some of the places that that allow me to build my confidence to to strike out on my own to do a lot of the different things I, I eventually did after that. And um, I would think too that uh, when when you talk about this, and clearly uh, this is a passion of yours, and that's why you've done this for so many years. But we often hear as well about the the margins in restaurants, and even uh, with the, how things, the price of things have gone up, and people thinking that uh, when we are eating out, it is it is more expensive. Uh, it's not as though it's it's a way to to become a millionaire quickly or to see these huge profits. It's uh, it's a lot of work, isn't it, to make a profit and to make money absolutely i I'm, I'm not sure if you heard of the, uh, the the running joke you know about how you can make a million dollars in the restaurant business and that is to start with five right but right. um <laughs> but 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 it's it's this last few years uh, during the pandemic has certainly been the most challenging that i've seen in about 40 years of doing this there, there are a lot of forces working against us for sure um but you know, what were the the biggest challenges? I mean, obviously, when when things were were closed and capacity was lowered and such. But what and we we also heard about so many people uh, shifting uh, gears when it came to working and and people needing employees. What were the biggest challenges for you? For us, I believe it was uh, um, price increases. It was uh, supply chain issues. Um, we were fortunate enough not to have any of the staffing issues that uh, I know that a lot of uh, other places in the industry complain about, um, partly because we didn't lay anybody off. We kept everybody uh, working, um, and so a lot of them stayed. But uh, the, the cost of products, um, because, you know, we're, we're here to take care of the community, and I know that the community hasn't had a pay raise in a long time, you know, as well. So how do you provide products to them that they can still enjoy and and be able to afford. We've certainly seen the traffic count um, go down, 
right? Because people are still treating themselves, but they're not treating themselves as often as they used to before because of the prices. Right. And yeah, that, that's, that certainly makes a lot of sense. Um, people will be familiar with the Six Mile Pub and Eatery uh, based in Victoria. I know you've, you've won some other awards, uh, Reader's Choice Awards for the Best Pub. What do you think? What is it that people love so much about it? I think mostly because we try to create a uh, unique product. Um, what, what I say to my staff is that, you know, we, we don't want to compete where everybody's competing, you know, uh, where they're competing for price, lower price. They're competing for, 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 for those things that everybody seems to gravitate to. We try to focus on quality. We try to focus on, you know, making sure that everybody, when they walk in here, gets greeted properly, gets taken care of properly. And, and um, sort of an, an unintended consequence of that, I, I think, was um, we had always wanted to create food that's real. So we use whole ingredients. We buy them, you know, products that are um, antibiotic-free, um, hormone-free and such. And before we knew it, people were coming in here saying, hey, I have a trio kid or, or I'm a celiac. I have uh, these eight different allergies. Can you feed me? And we kind of looked at them and we go, yeah, why not? You know, we, have, we send a chef out to the table, the chef talks to the guests, figure out what their allergies are, goes back into the kitchen, into the walk-in, picks up the whole ingredients and create a custom meal for them, right? That's, that's just part of the hospitality um, um, attitude that, that, that we want to try and provide. And then before we knew it, we became sort of the go-to place for a lot of people with allergies, the celiac um, 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 uh, resource group here in Victoria endorses us. Um, all, their, all, all their members um, rely on us to, to be safe. Um, we make a lot of our own uh, gluten-free breads and, and, and things. And, and so, again, not, not because I was any smarter than anybody. It, it was just by coincidence that we just wanted to do that, something real food. And, and as an as a unintended consequence of that, we were able to take care of a lot more people in the community than, than, than we had imagined. And so that was actually one of the things that saved, saved us through COVID as well, because the people who knew that we were safe for them and their families to dying at when they, because they have allergies and sensitivities came knocking on our doors to ask us to stay open for them. Hmm. Yeah, so I think that's maybe where our uniqueness in. And, and I mean, especially for, for a pub, right? Um, yeah. I, you know, you would expect restaurants to do that. But, but for us, you know, food is food doesn't matter where you get it. It should be good. It should be real. Very, very true. Well, David, congratulations again for, for being one of the inductees into the BC Restaurant Hall of Fame. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It, it, it was an honor. Thank you very much, Jill. Right now, we are shifting gears and talking about some new research that shows workplaces in this province, well, they are not meeting the needs of everyone. This was some research done by Research Co. and the president of that company, Mario Canseco, is joining us. Mario, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Jill. Great to chat with you. Well, this is uh, interesting information that you have been asking companies about barriers, difficulties with their daily activities. Uh, what were you asking people about their workplaces? Well, we wanted to find out a couple of things. One of them is what types of barriers are being faced by British Columbians with disabilities 
when it comes to their daily lives. And the expectation was also to see whether the amenities that we have in our cities are definitely working for them. And it was quite surprising to see the changes when you look at the way in which British Columbians as a whole feel about the way we have things right now. And when you look at the experience of those who have disabilities, uh, the one area where we see a significant divide is the workplace. 60% of BC residents thinking that workplaces are actually well-equipped to assist people with disabilities. But for those who actually live with a disability, satisfaction drops to 46%. So it's uh, essentially one out of every two British Columbians with a disability who say the offices as they are right now are not really working for me. So that's a pretty big gap between the two, isn't it? The perception of how people are viewing their workplace to how it's actually being perceived by people who need uh, that accessibility. Yes. And what is really striking is when we look at specific things that British Columbians with a disability have experienced, uh, we are not at the level of other countries, particularly European countries, when it comes to issues such as um, having access to a quiet area in your workplace when you need it. 27% say they have had that experience. Only 22% who were provided with special supports to complete their work or studies. In some European countries, these numbers are in the 40s or 50s. Uh, one ray of hope, in a way, is that we do see younger British Columbians with a disability saying that they have had access to things like this. So it's uh, ultimately a situation where five, 10 years down the road, these numbers might move a little bit. But right now we have a lot of Generation Xers and a lot of those who are over the age of 55 who are saying, I never had this at my office. Does it also take a look at, or did, did you ask people about certain things when you're talking about, say, a quiet room or you're talking about the technology, uh, going beyond what we might see every day in that maybe ramps or we see that the doorways have buttons for opening doors for people, things that, that are much more physical and, and maybe we've, we've hopefully been paying more attention to, uh, but, but not really acknowledging other disabilities that aren't really seen? That is definitely part of the um, situation that comes out of this. And one of the reasons is we ask people whether they're affected by some of these barriers all of the time or most of the time. Uh, the lowest is technological, devices not working for you, information or communications, particularly for those who have sensory disabilities, and architectural or physical. 28% who tell us, I can't get in a building or an outdoor space because it's not built for me. Now, this is a number that is lower from the two biggest problems that uh, BC residents with a disability are facing, uh, which are systemic, you know, having policies, procedures in place that unfairly discriminate and prevent you from participating fully, and 34% who tell us that they have experienced attitudinal issues, uh, behaviors, perceptions, assumptions that discriminate. So the biggest lesson here is we're doing well on the physical and technological stuff. The bigger problem is inside our minds. Are we having difficulties coming up with organizational or systemic solutions that take everyone into account? And we're still dealing with the attitudinal uh, scenario when it comes to people assuming that those with a disability cannot participate or should not participate. Hmm. Uh, so so I, I guess the numbers, too. Are, were you surprised at all by these numbers, especially when you say when we're comparing it to other countries? Uh, other countries certainly seem to be ahead on this. Well, you know, this is a case of looking at Canada and, B and BC particularly in comparison with other areas of the world. Uh, uh, there are 
particularly Eastern European countries, Western European countries, where these things, uh, the numbers that we see for some of these questions would be in the teens. So it's really the rarity that somebody is experiencing this type of barrier. You look at places in Latin America, for instance, the numbers might be significantly higher. Uh, so it's a bit of a blessing and a curse when we look at the numbers. We're doing a lot better on specific things that have to do with being prepared, having technology in place, making sure that your information is going to be read by everybody and making sure that people can access a venue. Though those three were doing way better. The bigger problem is organizational and ultimately attitudinal. So in my mind, I was expecting some of these issues to be lower. So it was quite surprising to see that we're not doing that well on the stuff that we control, which is how we treat people. Right, because even looking at some of these numbers and looking at things that you asked people about parks and beaches, about their specific municipalities, stores and malls, uh, still in the 50s percentage wise, so not hugely uh, overwhelming, but uh, at least there is, it appears that people who live with a disability say they're at least satisfied with those areas. Yes, there's certainly progress on, on, on some of the other things that we're looking into. There's a big difference when we ask about stores and malls, for instance. You have practically 80% of Canadian of PC residents saying it's fine, but it's not fine for somebody who's trying to get in through the door or who's ha having some difficulty looking into the things that they're going to buy. I wasn't surprised by the change in the way we look at municipalities, particularly urban areas that can be exceedingly overwhelming for people with sensory disabilities. I think this is part of the issue uh, that the municipal governments need to focus on because we do see this urban-rural divide. If you live in a smaller municipality, you're not going to be affected by many of these things. But when you live in an urban area, it's going to be very complicated to deal with everything that is thrown around you. And we're also coming off a couple of years of the COVID-19 pandemic when we hardly left our homes. So there's a lot of work to do to get the cities ready for the way in which uh, British Columbians living with a disability require to be serviced. And and when getting back to what, what you were talking about as well with the, the kind of the things that are completely within our control and a third of British Columbians or 34 percent say uh, British Columbians who live with a disability saying that they have been negatively stereotyped or judged because of that. And and some even saying they've had difficulty entering a workplace or a school place that still does seem like a pretty high number. It is a high number, particularly when we look into the way in which the country has been dealing uh, with disabilities. There's been a significant change over the past 20 or 30 years on the way we're looking at this. We're certainly more inclusive on many things, but part of what we have here is the experience that happens within the workplace. The fact that somebody's ideas are going to be thrown out because of their disability or the way that they're looking at the world. So this is more of a human resources play. I think part of what we see here is certain things that the cities can work uh, to make better, but also the way in which the workplaces have to be set up in a way that allow people to thrive. And there is nothing more heartbreaking than having an idea that is important and having it shut down because people assume that you don't know what you're talking about. So it was disheartening to see that number at 34%. Hopefully the next time we ask, it'll be lower. Uh, have you asked people this or have you done this survey before? No, it's the first time we do it. I thought it was a good opportunity to look into something like this. Uh, there's been a little bit of research conducted uh, that we uh, took inspiration from, particularly from the European Union. And, you know, the numbers don't really compare as well as we might imagine. But, you know, there's uh, still a long way to go. And hopefully we can get closer to the type of situation that we see, particularly on the attitudinal aspects on countries such as France or Spain.
Interesting findings, as always. Mario, thank you so much for being with us, for joining the show today. My pleasure, Jill, anytime. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. 